This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not I have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, You'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, 
Francisco Morales. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Brian Bushway. Now, Brian is known as probably the world's best completely blind mountain biker and is also the founder of Acoustic Athletics. So we discuss a host of topics from his early childhood when he had vision, the physical and mental trauma of losing his sight, unlocking human potential by taking away a sense, the incredible perspective blind and vision impaired men and women have on the world and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 660 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Brian Bushway. Enjoy. So, Brian, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. You're welcome. It's great to be here. I'm excited for everything we're going to discuss today. Absolutely. Now, obviously, we are not looking at each other over uh, video at the moment. And it's interesting kind of preface to this whole conversation. Um, when I first started this podcast, because of crappy internet, more often than not, I would shut off the video and i'm sure we'll get to this later but when i listen to some of your your interviews and your conversations you talk about relying on sight and as you know people with you know what we consider normal vision or you know know, the the vision that most people experience um we rely on that an interesting thing is we're doing this now audio only and that takes me back to the early recording and i watched Sometimes the guests would start playing with their phones or organizing stuff, and you could tell. But more often than not, by removing the video component, it sent people to a much deeper place than if we were staring at each other on the video. Yeah, I mean, it's it's true. The, it, the, it's the flashing lights that hypnotize called the screen. And it has an incredible way of just being distracting from listening and so by quieting you know the screen really creates more opportunity for active listening to happen and it, and it makes sense uh, uh, uh why that is so it's just it's interesting it's like the ratio of our senses are not always used in the most strategic way at all times like why do we need to use vision to talk and you know, it's nice to have it, I guess, sometimes, but more or less, you, you don't really need it to get what is communicated across. Absolutely. I think if you think of, you know, most of our generation pre-cell phone, you know, we just had a telephone. And so you weren't looking at people and you did just have to listen to each other. And I find that when I'm on the phone to, to family, for example, or, you know, people that I connect with before podcasts, 
you're talking for an hour and you lose track of time. Whereas when you're FaceTiming, there's a little bit more kind of, uh, there's a greater sense of time. So I feel like the, you know, the removal of the face sometimes allows people to go, you know, far more cerebrally into that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of sound in many ways. It's the primary sense for building relationships. Um, and, you know, right back into the book of Genesis, you know, God spoke and created everything else. So there it was from the very beginning, the power of the voice. Yeah. Didn't say God Skyped. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm sure the new modern updated ones will be like, what? <laughs> about that for sure. All right. Well, I would love to start at the very beginning of your story and then kind of walk through. And then again, we'll kind of explain more as to why, you know, you have become so embedded in this understanding of the senses and, and how you can create higher performance by removing some of those. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Yeah, I grew up in Southern California, a town called Mission Viejo. And I grew up in the foothills of Saddleback Mountain. And I have two sisters and you know, parents, mom and dad. My dad was an entrepreneur. He uh, built and managed ice skating rinks. So we were involved in training Olympic athletes in the figure skating and the hockey community uh, for, for many of the years growing up. So that was sort of an influence. But I enjoyed riding my bike grabbing my fishing pole and with my buddies we'd ride up over the hills and go fish in the local ponds and lakes and you know try to make it back home for dinner time and so there was a lot of sense of adventure and a lot of freedom a lot of outdoor play and i mean it was a it was a fun childhood and i did a lot of other recreational sports in different seasons when one week we're into soccer the next we're into baseball then we're playing football then we're climbing big eucalyptus trees and building tree forts you know two stories off the ground uh, so there was always a lot of imaginative and creative play as you know we were playing sports and you know, just just having a good time but our family was close but we enjoyed we still enjoy each other. Family vacations and family dinners are always super fun. We make each other laugh and know how to have a good time. So I worked for Anaheim Fire Department for a few years, so I'm familiar with Vision, Mission Viejo. Did your dad have anything to do with building the the uh, uh, duck skating rink? Um, he, the ducks tried to buy my dad's skating rinks. Because uh, between the uh, the Kings up in L.A. and the Ducks down in you know, Orange County, they had a turf war for all of the ice skating rinks in the Southern California area. So uh, my dad, you know, does know all those things, but not directly involved in that. But the Ducks have played at our rinks and things like that. But yeah, our first when we started mountain biking, actually, our first mountain bike trips were in the Anaheim Hills area. So that was sort of the or back in even the origin story, the foothills of Anaheim, where when we started our team bat or blind mountain bike team. Brilliant. All right. Well, then speaking of athletics, kind of pre um, that realization of your diminishing vision, what were you playing as a younger child? 
But right then I was into hockey. So I was playing a lot of hockey and I was into aggressive rollerblading. So I was skating half pipes, jumping stairs, grinding rails. Then I was into soccer. I was always a goalie. I don't think I liked running as much, (laughs) but I, I, something about the goalie position really attracted me to it. And, And so early on, I was a pretty good goalie. Uh, I was an aggressive goalie, so I would charge the players, and the whole you know goalie box was my territory, and I did my best to defend it. Um, but yeah, I liked soccer, football around the rest of the world, and yeah, I mean it was it was just good. But as my vision loss started increasing, it started affecting my ability to play sports and participate in that like in the full capacity you know like hockey leaving hockey was one of the first encounters of like wow my vision is pretty bad i really can't interpret these patterns of light in a useful way anymore and i had to retire from playing hockey and unfortunately at that time it you know, and it, and it kind of went like this. Like the whole shocking thing was, here I am. We're on offense, so we got to keep the puck in front of the blue line. And I can hear the puck. I can hear the players, and then the puck would just go right on by me. And then I'd catch it right out of my peripheral, but it'd be too late. And the coach is Brian. What are you doing? Get the puck. Are you blind or something? And <laughs> yes, yes, that's exactly what was happening. And I was losing my vision and it was about to become what people label as, you know, blind. And that was the shocking realization. And, and I couldn't play. I couldn't really keep up. And I felt like I was a detriment to the team. But I didn't have the adaptive or creative mindset. And I didn't really have any knowledge about what did other people do if they can't see patterns of light so i was really at a loss and i just sort of shied away from it but i got even more into like individual sports where then i was like low vision barely able to see eight feet in front of me and i was still you know skating half pipes grinding rails and you know jumping off of things and not really seeing the ground very well where i was gonna land so when I heard you in one of the podcasts I listened to, um, you talked about once you kind of process the vision loss, when you look back, maybe you didn't have the same vision that some of the other kids around you were experiencing. So, w- you know, what was what did that look like? Do you think, I mean, you, you talk about playing hockey, which is obviously a very acute sport where the, the puck is moving at insane speed. You're talking about being a football goalkeeper where, again, they're blasting it at you and you're having to react in a split second. With that kind of retroactive memory, what? how would you describe the vision compared to what you would imagine the other kids on teams, you know, were experiencing with their eyes? Well, it's sort of everything started blurring out. I couldn't see things at distances. So my threshold of awareness became a lot closer. Um, different lighting conditions would affect things. So like high noon when the sun was like straight overhead, 
I didn't like it as much because I started realizing I was using shadows to get contrast to my visual surroundings. So I remember when we would play like, you know, I don't know, skating competitions, right? One guy pulls a trick and then you would have to follow and play the other trick, play, do that same trick. Well, I started telling them I didn't want to do it at one o'clock or noon. I wanted to do it in the afternoon where I had the angle of the sun and can get contrast to the shadows. And so I was adapting. I, I just didn't have anybody to talk about it with and it, or to bring out how I was still not really seeing well at all, but how was I still, you know, functioning in all of this? And like one point, I remember we're skating to the, we're going to lunch and I had enough vision to sort of fake it like I could see. But essentially what I was doing was just following my other friends. I was doing a very good job at keeping them within my visual threshold. And so I would just follow them. Well, they started speeding up and they got out, out ahead. And then naturally I couldn't follow them. So I slowed down. So the distance is greater. I'm still trying to keep up. I go down the slope. The texture changes. <gasps> I was crossing the street, but I couldn't tell if it was green or red to cross. And then the horns honking informed me that I was crossing on the red. <laughs> right? I stopped. I go back to the corner. I collect myself. I'm emotionally freaked out. I went, wow. And there it was. I had enough vision to get into trouble, but not enough to get out. And that's really the sort of first lesson. As I'm standing there on this corner, it's before cell phones. It's not like I can call, oh, mom, come pick me up. I'm just there. I'm stuck. My friends are gone. They, they really have no concern because they don't really know how to help. And I wasn't very good about communicating my needs. So there I was, panicked, trapped on this corner. <laughs> I'm going to be here for a long time. And there it was. I couldn't, I couldn't think straight. I was actually emotionally blind. My emotions were running so high that I couldn't think straight. So I started breathing and I started calming myself. And so it was the power of breathing that helped me recenter and focus. And then I realized, wow, if I cross with my near side parallel traffic, that'll be the best time to go. And that's turns out that's a skill that I currently teach other, you know, visually impaired people on how to cross streets. And you cross with your parallel traffic and you listen for that car surge, the roar of the engines, and then they start moving. Ah, all right, there's your context clue that the light has changed and, and it's safe to cross so there it was i had enough vision to get into trouble but not enough to get out and my first real human lesson in how to adapt to this new challenge was wow it was my emotions were my first obstacle to overcome and then the vision loss stuff was quite separate and so that was what was interesting it did, and as i was going through vision loss it's funny everybody started putting me in this box oh you're now a visually impaired person you're now a blind person that's your identity 
huh? What is, what is that? I, it didn't make sense. And it still, I get, I get, I have better understanding of what all that is now, but all of a sudden by that label, they were limiting and putting lower expectations on what I was capable of as a person. But the, but I was a human being first and then I happened to be visually impaired. So the real value in all of this was like, wow, like I had to become a better human being. And as I expanded, you know, my personal attributes and characters of what it means to be a human, the visual impairment stuff started becoming a lot less significant. And so that's really the journey here. Isn't, isn't, Oh, here's the lessons of how to be a, a blind person. No, no, this is like, how do we be a human being overcoming challenges, which it turns out vision loss is most people's biggest fear. They can't imagine their life if they weren't, you know, they can't, they can't imagine a life if they, if they could not use you know, the light. And so I was sort of facing that. And then all of a sudden I started realizing that everybody else's fears and insecurities around vision loss started getting projected onto me. And I found myself really stuck in this sort of new label. And yeah, I, I mean, it was, it was very confusing. So really this vision loss threw me into an identity crisis. And I started then more philosophically thinking about as a young person, you know, 14, 15, what does it mean to be a whole person? And having to work that question out and whether a person has the ability to see patterns of light or not, does that make them less capable of having a whole experience, you know, or not? You know, later I found out, wow, you know, as we get into the story of transformation, in many ways now I feel like I live so much of a more enriching full life than I ever could have possibly thought as a 14-year-old, 15-year-old going through all that. So, I mean, it was pretty cool along the way. It was amazing that I learned that, wow, you know, different seasons of challenges, different seasons of life. But then again, we can renew ourselves and actually we can have new dreams emerge in our hearts and new goals and, and, and you know, life can be more things than we ever possibly thought. And that's really this whole vision loss has really taught me that there is so much more possible for all of us than we ever you know, really, truly give ourselves credit to. And yeah, due to a genetic mutation in my DNA, in about six months, I went from being a person with uh, functional vision to now having no light perception, only then to continue the journey to learn to see in the dark with echolocation and the use sound and how sound actually you know, our brain is so cool that it takes sound, it rewires itself, and it can use the object recognition parts of the brain to actually create an acoustic image. And that's into that whole 
other idea if you lose one sense or other senses get stronger? The answer is yes, but the more interesting thing that is applicable to all people is that our brains, because of neuroplasticity, are more plastic, flexible, adaptable than we ever thought. And that's really what the journey was as well. I can actually, I learned to teach myself new things and how to see in a new way as a, as a 14, 15 year old to see in the dark well enough to be able to navigate a bike around objects. And then science measures the brain with MRI scans and says, oh yeah, look at these individuals. You know, Brian's cool. He's not the only one. It turns out all humans have this ability to echolocate and use sound to image their environment when there's no light. It's a wow. You know, so it was, it, that alone started breaking preconceived ideas about what I thought was possible as a person. And yeah, like there's a lot, you know, like <clears throat> there's a lot. Like, yeah, and at first it wasn't easy. It was hard. But what was hard about it? The biggest shock when I first was even low vision back in the eighth grade yeah, I can sort of see enough of big buildings and tell where people are, but I couldn't recognize any of my friends. So here I was surrounded with my friends, not able to recognize who they were. So I, I felt very alone, very isolated, even in the groups of you know, people who I knew. Um, so there's a lot of this is the internal journey as I needed to access, you know, the physical and outer world. But the real, you know, the real story was like myself having these bigger life conversations and questions and not necessarily getting the answers right away, but having a willing spirit to try and to keep going. Well, when we talk about vision challenges. It's interesting. I think that my bonus boy, my stepson, has probably a similar disease process or genetic mutation than you do, but just in one eye. So my wife's actually ironically in optometry school now, becoming an optometrist. So she's, as she goes through, she's actually going to start exploring that more. But he's, he reports if he closes one eye, they're having limited vision. I believe that's an optic nerve issue as well. Conversely, a very, very mild eye story. When I was young, I was told in school age that I was colorblind. So therefore, I could never be a firefighter, uh, you know, a, a pilot, all the cool jobs. Um, and so, you know, I believe that for years and years and years. Now, the reason I say that is that stopped me from, you know, initially stopped me from profession until I questioned it and then, you know, challenged it and ended up becoming a firefighter because yes, there is color deficiency in my eyes, but it is not significant enough to stop me from doing the job. So when I listened again to your podcast, there were mentors in your life and there were, you know, mentor figures that actually did the polar opposite and, you know, didn't allow you, for example, in the wrestling team. So talk to me at that moment, you know, you're a 14 year old boy just going through the hormonal development, that kind of sense of self. And then all of a sudden, you know, there's a shift. What 
what was the power of the positive mentorship and your parents? Um, and then talk to me about the impact of negative. You know, what, which, uh, how destructive can someone be in the, the wrong way when it comes to a challenge like this? Yeah. The, it was strange and the shift happened as soon as I picked up the white cane. Which for me, the white cane, it's a performance tool. It's like a hockey stick, tennis racket. It, it, it's a tool that gives the sense of feeling and extension. It's an extension of the long arm. And so it gives you powerful information so you don't walk off a curb or walk off a cliff or fall down the stairs. So I picked that up thinking that this was going to be a benefit to allow me to have the freedom to move around the world. But as soon as I picked that up, now my vision loss was no longer hidden, right? Uh, this symbol said, oh, wow, he's blind. And then the negative part came with the fact that most people and most of us in society don't have a lot of experience around this or knowledge. So I became trapped in this box of low expectations. And society's there telling you like, oh, don't, don't move. We'll do it for you. You, you can't see. You get hurt. You're going to trip over something. We'll just do it. Oh, blind people don't do that. Blind people do this. It was like all of a sudden, here I was a teenager having the summer of the most freedom skating around, uh, you know, young adolescent boys just having the type of fun that we did. There was a lot of freedom and, it, 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 you know, the leash was long and now bam, I'm, I'm labeled with this blindness, this white cane that's supposed to help me. But the bigger message was now you don't, do anything stop and early on yeah the wrestling coach i tried to wrestle and because people said oh yeah they have adaptive rules for wrestling and a lot most of people realize oh there's been other vision impaired people that were wrestling so i thought i'd cool i'll go get into wrestling and i'll be really good at wrestling turned out the coach didn't really want me on the team don't know why his full story, but he essentially made it very uncomfortable for me to be on the team to the point where none of the other teammates would even talk to me out of fear of the coach doing something to them. Like the first day in practice, the coach, he wouldn't even let me bench press. And I'd been bench pressing and knew my way away around a weight room for a long time. And so he just said no. And he had the voice of authority. And so here I found myself as a young person with all of these voices of authority telling me, no, I can't do things and closing opportunities when everyone around me and myself knew that this was supposed to be good. So I started realizing, wow, people aren't super friendly. Not everybody's really nice. Wow, the world can be pretty cruel. It's not all 
equal. But the positive side is here I was with supportive parents who their attitude with me uh, was at first, yeah, they first they thought I, oh my gosh, we got a bigger get a bigger house. Brian's gonna live with us for a long time. We're gonna have to be caretakers. But my parents were open-minded enough to start educating themselves, start talking to people. My mom started reading books about other uh, uh, blind adults who did things, played golf, were super successful, had families, had jobs. Okay, there's other people that, that live full lives. What do they do? Let's learn from them. So my parents always had this yes attitude. When I said, oh, I'm now like, can't see, but I'm going to get my cane. I'm going to jump on a skateboard and I'm going to practice skateboarding again. They were like, okay, what's your approach? So they had, so I was lucky to have that internally while I was outside trying to expand my world, getting these messages. No, you don't do this. We don't really want you here. Because you're different. You actually make it, I, my presence made it difficult for teachers because they now had to do things different in their world. And I caused friction to it. So it was easier not to include me. So I found myself sidelined out of life and but had these soul cravings and desires. I wanted more. I wanted to get back into the games. I wanted to get and participate in life. And, and so I had parents that said yes. And then I also was lucky enough at the time to have mentors, Daniel Kish, who basically taught me, yeah, here's how you use your other senses in more strategic ways. And he was the first person early on when I started hearing the world differently helped me put context to why and what was going on. And he was visually impaired himself, been blind his whole life, but was a teacher, traveled the world, played games and just sort of introduced me to this, you know, in a, in a way, a sense of normalcy. Like let's go out and play laser tag. Here's how you're a visually impaired person and go play hide and go seek. Here's how we climb a tree. And just having him as a role model, just one person to say, no, nah, this is how it's done, was, was good enough to challenge all of those other negativity or to challenge all of that other negativity. It, 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 and so I had perspective, you know, so it just had a little glimpses of hope along the way. And focusing on those moments of hope was enough to you know, give me inspiration to you know, want to keep persevering through. But it did, yeah, I mean, but it didn't stop. I mean, all of a sudden I just learned, okay, wow, like you know, leaving the wrestling team was pretty heartbreaking because I always had my identity in athletics. And then I had this free time. So I actually picked up music. I had a guitar. And, and that time, I started focusing on learning the guitar. And I started playing jazz music and blues. And as a 15, 16-year-old, I was then taking lessons. And I was soon out playing in local jazz bars with adults. 
you know, who are all over 50, who are just jazz experts. And I found myself on the band stage playing with them. And so that developed this whole other side of me of uh, being able to write songs and be creative and poetry and the power of words. So I found a new passion in music while I sort of took this break to reevaluate, you know, was my time best served in that social environment with all of that negative energy where a coach that doesn't want me, a team that doesn't want me. Well, that was just one tiny portion of the rest of life. I realized that, Hey, well, there's other teams and there's, I, I went and played shot put and discus on the, on the team. Well, those coaches were more open-minded and they're like, cool, Brian, come and join us. So it, it just sort of helped me wise up to analyze what are the social environments that are going to be best for me to grow and help me become the person I want to be. So it, 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 I realized too, it had less to do with me and had more to do with other people, which was helpful because those first couple years of like, I, I was really confused. Like I was internalized like when I would meet a new person, you know, they, they're wondering how do you talk to a blind person? What happens if you, can you ask them a question? Do you go see a movie or, and they, I'd watch them fumble around changing their language. Oh, oh did you go hear the movie? It's like, no, nah, no, nah, I went and saw the movie. And, and so socially, I became very astute that, wow, my, not only did I have issues accessing my physical world, but more importantly, that my social world, my social environment now is completely crazy with just people not knowing what to do. And so I, I, but I had, I was internalizing everybody else's nervous energy as my own. And I was carrying that for a lot of years. And then one day I realized, wait a second, I'm cool. I'm fine with being visually impaired. Like when I would go home at night and be quiet, it's like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I got this. Like I'm still a whole person. I, I can find ways to express that all these other people who are being weird and nervous, that's their energies. That's their uncomfortabilities. So I was able to sort of tease that out. And then I had a better read on the social environment. Well, it's, it's fascinating. And it really does underline again, the importance of positive mentorship. And I think, I've been in CrossFit now for 16 years. And so I've watched it go from, you know, the main site workout to this evolution now where the adaptive community is incredible. And some of the innovation where people have worked out how to scale a CrossFit workout for someone with cerebral palsy or, or a veteran that's missing limbs or, you know, whatever it is. Um, it's just this mindset of okay this is this is who i am this is the you know the tools that i do have these are some of the tools that were taken away from me how do i circumnavigate the norm and make this work so talk to me about that journey of you know getting on a bike and the the echolocation journey for you yeah i didn't even know the term echolocation 
even though all humans are born with this ability, we most commonly understand echolocation in bats, whales, dolphins use echolocation. But turns out every humans are were born with the same thing. And so there I was in the eighth grade. I had, I, I had a cane and I was walking down the, the, the hallways and I could this sort of half indoors, half outside to the open courtyard and there were pillars holding up the ceiling. And, and as I passed them, I could tell the difference pillar, open space, pillar, open space. I'm like, wait a second. I've just been told I'm blind, have no light perception. How is it that I can tell that there's an object out in front of me? I can walk around it and I don't have to touch it. Huh. So I shared that with other blindness professionals at the time. And they just, oh, yeah, you know, other people have reported that they can kind of have this sense or it's a sixth power or a sixth sense, a magic power. Okay, but that's sort of where it ended in the understanding. And then I met Daniel and he goes, Brian, what you're doing, you're the reason why you can tell where an object is without having to touch it is because sound is reflecting off that object. And the brain is recognizing the reflections and it's creating an image in three dimensional space. And it turns out that's the same way vision works. Light reflects off of objects, goes back to the eye. And then everything that is happening outside of us, so we think, is really being constructed inside the mind. The mind, the brain, the mind is really the visual processing center or spatial processing center. And so Daniel shares with me, Brian, you're using echolocation. You know, sound reflects off of objects. Those objects return back. And then the brain takes that sound information, but more sophisticated over time, the brain will rewire itself to take that auditory information and make new connections to have even a more like detailed, acute understanding of objects and landscapes and you know what's going on around you. So to me, I closed my eyes here in the eighth grade. I could walk around it. The first impressions were I thought I was seeing these things. That's what it was, is what it felt like, it what it was. It's just that we didn't have the language to talk about, oh my gosh, every human being has alternative ways of seeing. The idea that we only see through patterns of light is a narrow definition of the totality of the perception that we as humans have. That's what was missing. That the language around this was limiting. It didn't create room for other ways of knowing what was going on around oneself. So as soon as Daniel's like, oh, yeah, Brian, you're using sound. And it's reflecting off of objects. And that's how you're able to tell where things were. Ho, oh, made sense. 
I was I'm like, well, why wouldn't I want to be more aware? Why wouldn't I want to see with sound more? Seems like the fool who doesn't want to have more information about what's going on around them. So I started fast moving, learning and applying this new understanding. And then within a couple years, yeah, we, I was on a bike again and I I was able to then pilot my own bike and and with it. And there's two types of echolocation, right? There's passive and active passive is whatever the ambient sounds in the environment are. Could be an air conditioner, a car passing by, a person talking. Those sounds reflect off of objects, yeah, and they give, you know, a general idea that there are things around. But if you want more clarity in your image, use an active signal, like a tongue click. That that tongue click is so powerful. That it can be made very subtle, but to the brain and to the perceptual body and system, the echoes that are coming back, the brain learns to see. And so with the active signal, I was now getting more clarity. I could have, okay, there's the pole, there's open space. I can reach out and grab the pole. So it brought the active signal brought actual clarity and I just started teaching my brain through experiences and trials that was teaching myself to see all over again. Mind you, all of us with vision, we forgot how we learned how to see. Like James, do you recall as a kid learning how to use your vision? No, I, I mean I have problems remembering what which underwear I put on today. So, <laughs> I mean exactly, exactly right. Has something so significant as like a major sense is vision. Society was just sort of geared and designed to encourage the growth of using vision, which is really a distant sense, right? Vision is beautiful at acquiring information far away from us. And sort of making sense. Well, if you don't have patterns of light or vision to see, the next best sense for picking up things in the distance is the ears. Sound is your next distal sense. And so using sound to pick up things in the distance, teaming that with the power of the white cane, I was able to pick up things close. So I now had a distant sense and a way of paying attention to what's more closer to me. And it, it, I just started being able to move more free. And then that movement translated onto the mountain bike. And so I was able to now ride around a quiet residential area, you know, avoiding the backs of cars or curbs. Uh, but then as we got onto the trails, we did need some modifications because we didn't know the trail. And we were riding, you know, miles, so we couldn't really preview it. So we ended up putting a nylon zip tie around the frame, angling it into the bike spokes. And every time the wheel turned, it'd make a noise. Cool. Just like if you stuck a baseball card or some other sound source. 
So now the bikes around, you know, us, us riders would make noise. So we knew where they were. And we usually out on the trail would have a sided rider right out in front. And we'd use the sound of the bikes to follow. But we were also able then to use the active echolocation to tell if we were closer to the left side of the trail or more on the right side of the trail. And we were not being remote controlled. It was not turn left, turn right. That's a very different experience than, okay, here's the sounds out there. Now let me as a person interpret those sounds and make my moves of precision to not fall off a cliff. So, yeah, so we got into biking. So there I was within, you know, three years of vision loss. I was back on a mountain bike, riding mountains, going down stairs. It was thrilling. It was fun. But it was, it was challenging. But it was really training my other senses to become way stronger. And it because I could do these things, not with vision. So it was really empowering. And in mountain biking, I think at one point, you know, Mountain Bike Action Magazine came out, did a story on our team in 2001. I, I was a senior in high school. They said, almost certainly, Brian Bushway is the world's best totally blind mountain biker. And that was pretty cool because the title more or less is a marker in life caused me to reflect and say, wow, it was only four years ago. I thought I was going to live the rest of my life with my parents. And now I'm doing something I never thought was possible. What other things are possible? So it shattered preconceived ideas about what I thought I could do as a person and those moments really served me to be hungry to ask the questions, okay, what, what more is possible? And these moments started changing the way I thought about life in my worldview. Well, up to this point, obviously, we're talking about your journey, but you touched on at the very beginning about the application to people, whether they have a, a, a version of, you know, vision loss or, you know, complete anatomical destruction of the eye or people that still have their vision. Now, when I think about jujitsu, for example, a lot of times I find myself not looking at limbs, but trying to feel the person, even when I'm doing Muay Thai. Um, I'm staring kind of at the solar plexus. So, you know, that's a great kind of indicator of shoulder and hip movement to give you an idea if someone's going to kick you or punch you. But it's also, it's, it's not locking in on the vision. So I've heard you discussing these incredible kind of, um, revelations that you found, you know, with the people around you and obviously within yourself. Talk to me about acoustic athletics and let's start unpacking all these lessons and the application you're using to help athletes and other professions around the world. Yeah, it turns out, right? Back to the beginning, like we're human beings first. And then, all right, you have a visual impairment. So the things that we're learning was really about how the human body, mind, and perceptual system works. And in jujitsu especially, um, there's plenty of other experts in jujitsu who claim 
that they only practice under blindfold. And they have 20-20 vision. And, and that's their discipline of practicing because they want the kinesthetic information. It's quicker. What you feel, if you could feel the movement in a person, it's a quicker relay to the mind and the brain of what's going on than the visual system, right? The visual system has limitations. Most people never push their visual system to the thresholds of the limitation where, you know, we, I mean, they can make films that run faster than the human eye can process. That, that MTV did this years ago when they started coming up with their new editing, you know, jump shots and quick things. They were putting more images in a frame per second than the human eye could process. We just grew accustomed to it. So we're getting bombarded with things that we don't even consciously recognize. So, yeah, in jiu-jitsu, there's plenty of examples of guys who just only practice under the blindfold with 20-20 vision because they feel that is that beneficial. Uh, let's go to boxing. Tyson Fury, who's the world's heavyweight boxer, he practices 60% under blindfold. Interesting, because he feels that that acuteness of his other senses are going to prepare him for a better performance. So, and the reason why the blindfold is, is we call it a blindfold, this is really a bad name. If you're putting a blindfold on in a training environment, it really should be called something more like an awareness mask. Because when you quiet the loudest sense, which for most people is vision, patterns of light, vision occupies two-thirds of the brain's processing power. Whether that's good vision or if you're labeled you know, visually impaired, crappy vision, the brain is still spending a lot of hard work trying to make sense and interpret what this visual stimuli is. Two-thirds of the brain. Whether that information in the task is useful or not, like we talked about, is it really useful to have vision in a conversation like this? Huh, maybe not so much. But if we had the screen, our brain would be dependent in predicting and trying to make sense of this visual information. So when you quiet that sense, the loudest sense, it creates more opportunity and space for the other senses to start growing, rewiring itself, and to focus on them and the information that these senses can provide. Most high-performance anything we're doing is really being done through a full, like, a full understanding of all the other senses which is not very good at talking about how our muscle memory influenced us in the moment how we actually use our sense of hearing for timing and spatial motor movement right the the, the sound in sports is better with time and rhythm um 
tennis players, one of the reasons why tennis players make that grunting sound when they hit the ball is because they're creating a masking sound so that the opponent cannot hear the ball come off the racket. So the grunting sound is masking the ball come off the racket. And if you can hear that sound, it's going to inform you on the angle and trajectory of where that ball is going to go just by the sound. So sound actually is a huge component into sports. It's sort of the not really understood or talked about story of human performance. You know, the ball coming off the tennis racket, it could, you know, it could be traveling faster than the human eye could perceive. But really having that additional information of sound makes that player so much more effective in where they're going to be. Uh, Mookie Betts on the Dodgers picked up in the last like couple years a practice where he would have his back turned to home plate. And just by the ball coming off the bat, he knew how far and where that ball was traveling. And he could then, just by the sound, be running, not have to waste energy and time by looking over his shoulder because he was that skilled in the vocabulary of the sense of sound to run, get in position, and then at the last minute use vision for a correction tool, you know, to eye-hand coordination, follow the ball into the mitt. So sound is being used in sports already all over the place. We're just not very good at talking about it and how important it is. So we have a visual bias that we tend to think that everything that is happening is done through whatever our dominant sense is. So people, when they make sense and reflect on their experiences of accomplishment, it usually sort of gets washed out. Oh, it was because I could see. But that's not the full story. When I think of racquetball, and back in England, I played squash. So you're in a very acoustic space, especially if you're in a nice, you know, indoor court. I think exactly about what you're talking about. Like for a split second, you can hear if there was a skip or if it, you know, did it hit the floor before it hit the back wall? Was it, was it a sharp, you know, good shot? And, you know, there's no way in hell that it's your eyes telling you that it's your ears. So I can even attest to that. An interesting parallel when Ashley first connected us as well was I was thinking about the fire service. So when we are searching a building, especially when we're doing a lot of the drilling and the practice, um, you know, you're, you're blacked out. Either there's, there's dense smoke in there or they put something over your mask. Um, the, the, the kind of echolocation element isn't so, uh, such a, a, a kind of, um, a tool we can really tap into because we've got the regulator, the breathing in and out that's really kind of drowning out that. But there is, you know, one of the other senses that is the touch. And I remember my very first fire department, we did a huge amount of training because half the class was going through basic fire academy and we already had the certifications. So even though they would move the internal kind of rooms around in this, this multi-story um, tower that we trained in, 
by the time I graduated, I felt like I could literally paint a picture of this room. And of course, you know, acoustics are part of it, but also it was via touch. So have you had any interactions with with my profession or any other professions that operate in the dark that you've been able to help with this? Yeah, I mean, that's it. Like it, like even in professional sports, right? Or in these fields, at a certain point, everybody is visually compromised. What we need to take away from this conversation is just because we're visually compromised, that's not an excuse to not perform at our highest level. If we can train up our other senses to be reliable, dependent, and we and we can trust them. So yeah, I mean, I got buddies in the police department. I got buddies who are firefighters themselves. It was funny to me. I was talking about, yeah, you know, one of the strategies that he was telling me that they go through was they follow the perimeter of a wall, right? They go in a line, they follow the perimeter of the wall. And then that means, because you can't really see, you're smoked out. But if you're along the wall, you just reverse the route and you can go back. Well, turns out that's the same thing that, you know, blind travelers use very often. But what was funny to me was he was talking about, oh, yeah, we run into these places and we're tripping over couches. We're tripping over coffee tables. We're tripping over things in the house and they're falling sometimes. To me, I was like, wait a second. Why didn't you get yourself a probe or a cane, a white cane before you move into these spaces? Right. You there's no reason why any firefighter is tripping over anything if they had something. Yeah, they're carrying stuff. But perhaps you have a lead guy whose job is to actually clear the best walking paths. Right. To notify the others. OK, we got a couch here. Don't trip over this. Right. It, it, learning a space like it really like really the expertise of what I've learned over the years is how to make the unfamiliar familiar very quickly and efficiently through the other senses when you don't have vision. And so, yeah, we, I mean, we've done consulting with DARPA government groups over the years who have been curious about how to actually, you know, train up the other senses to do this. So it, yeah, Yes, you know, firefighting to me because of the smoke and stuff. Yeah, in echolocation, it's one a- aspect, you know, sounds reflecting and it's loud. You got fire. But guess what? We all still know, even with those sounds in the fire, that's still creating passive information. There is a, you can tell if you're in a small room versus a larger room. Though, those are things that can be taught very quickly. I'm still a little bit surprised why more first responders and special forces teams are not interested in actually developing these things quicker. But yeah, we've done some consulting with like firefighting groups and police departments and people in military, but it's such a big infrastructure that when you start going up the chain, you know, you know, somewhere the conversations get get stopped. But that's why we're talking now is because you were like, wow, this is interesting. There's some value here. Let's pay attention to this. Because, yeah, you know, give me 20 minutes with a firefighting crew 
they will be clearing out a room in a house in the dark quicker than they probably could have before. And just because that's what I do every day, right? I'm constantly walking into new environments and mapping them out and creating, you know, a, 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 like not a, like a mental image, but yeah, it's conceptual, but it's also physical. So, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's there. I mean, in, in, in the military, right? They do tests where they put blindfolds on people, crash a helicopter into water, drown everybody under blindfold and say, now get out. Okay. But yeah, they do it. It's fine. But that there's a whole level of sophistication of how we can actually train up our body, mind, and perceptual system to to not just be, oh, wow, it kind of works, but become very confident in it where it can become reliable. Well, and with you saying about adding the acuity of another sense, I mean, we just talked about how it applies to the fire service. I'd love to pull out some of the, the principles that maybe you would teach in PACE to, to help a group like that. But I also think about law enforcement and, you know, de-escalation and how, you know, yes, you've got vision, but I mean, a lot of times they're operating at night, you know, there might be a tinted out car. So I see the same kind of lack of interest in, in, in performance, sadly, from a lot of agencies as well. And they're so siloed, you know, they don't talk to each other. And it's bad enough just trying to implement a, a fitness program in a department, no matter talking about, you know, echolocation and, you know, sense security. Um, but I can see how that would, you know, would allow an officer to be a little bit more cognizant of some of the threats around them. Absolutely, because it's, it's part of our awareness system, right? You know, all of our senses add up to this strange world called perception, right? Which is really us making sense, right? We call it making sense of our world, what's going on. And so, yeah, we, <coughs> we most of the time just don't have, like, we're kind of aware that these things exist. We don't really know how to talk about because we don't have a very extensive vocabulary around the sense of sound, around the sense of touch. And if we spent a little more time hearing people's experiences, yeah, sense of sound, if you can hear a person's nervousness in their voice, are they overconfident? Are they underconfident? Maybe you can't really fully get an image of what the person's doing. So now sound, and, and once again, you're talking. You're interacting. We're relating with people through talking. So there's a lot to be said for becoming more in tune with how people share their words. Uh, there was a high school student who wanted to do like documentary for a short. And she asked me a really interesting question. She's like, you know, Brian, you know, most people say the eyes are the window to the soul. What do you think? I said, oh, it's, it's, it's the voice. It's the breath is the window to the soul because the person's words are coming from inside of themselves. 
right? Our breath is emanating from inside our lungs, moving through our vocal cords, and then we're having to choose how we want to say what we're going to say. My life doesn't lack of intimate relationships with people because I don't have the advantage of patterns of light, right? It's totally fine. So yes, there's a whole world that everybody could benefit from, from, you know, sound and people and just relationships and de-escalating, you know, scenarios. And, and right, most of this stuff in the challenges, like, why isn't this stuff like you wanted to bring cross fit and you're like, oh, wow, I send some like, you've met some obstacles. Well, most of us as humans, we're so stuck into the patterns of life, the way things currently are done. It just keeps the flow happening. Just because the flow is happening doesn't mean it's the best outcome. It's just the way that everybody's getting along. So when a person comes in to try to change the course, right? Just like me, how did I, as a person who wanted to try to be the best wrestler I could, how was I a threat to the wrestling coach and the rest of the team? I don't know. I, I'm not in their heads, but it happened. So sometimes when things are just outside of the pattern in the ordinary, cause friction to the way things are done. And a lot of people don't deal with that well. And so that's kind of what it is. It's like when we're bringing new ideas to the conversation, we got to have rapport with people. We got to, you know, it's the context of love or like truth is best understood. And so if we can't get to build rapport quick and have a context of understanding and knowing of each other, well, yeah, we're going to find ourselves at odds very quickly. But it's through words and it's through communication of sound that actually builds those understandings that can escalate or de-escalate a scenario. Well, that really kind of you know makes a, a an interesting question in my mind, and I was meaning to ask you this um, when I listened to the first interview. When I see a lot of the issues that we're dealing with for the moment, to me, there is an element of blindness. And you talk about emotional blindness, which is an interesting phrase. But let's say, for example, the last two years, you know, we had this virus come in um, that scared the hell out of a lot of people, um, took, you know, a lot of lives. But there is an underlying truth that we were already a very sick nation. You know, a lot of people that are overweight and obese and, you know, smokers and, and some things that are preventable that were then thrown to the wayside, you know, until this virus ran its course and then really did that whole conversation was disregarded. With your, your vision being taken away, and some of the other, you know, visually impaired or blind men and women that, that you surround yourself with, have you noticed any difference between people who have their vision and therefore are being bombarded with these images and these news stations and these, you know, social media videos versus 
the visually impaired that, as you said, rely more on an in-depth conversation, on a tone of voice, on the quality of what's being said. Have, have you noticed any disparity between that? Yeah, the, yeah, there. <laughs> yes, there's a disparity because the potency of messaging that comes from the screen. Right. There's a reason why the TV is the most or film or television is the most powerful medium. It's because of the TV, right? The TV, we call it it's the boob tube, right? You, you know, people just change channels and you out, walk into the room. And go, what are you watching? They go, I don't know. But they've been there for three hours. Is because the flashing lights actually put a person into a hypnotic state where the judgment parts of their brain are not as active. So whatever the messaging that is coming through is hitting their brain in a much more potent way. Because the frontal cortex that asks critical questions isn't engaged because it's been put asleep by the flashing lights that have hypnotized it. So yes, there is a huge discrepancy that, you know, I've been a huge fan of talk radio all my life. And I think that's much more a value of getting information that way than watching something on TV. Like, I can sit in a room with people who have 2020 vision and we'll spend the next 30 minutes watching the same news broadcast. They think they just got the news in that 30 minutes. I only heard five minutes of powerful information. The rest was just, we're cutting into it. Look at the moving pieces. Woo. The shiny things. Woo. Look at this. Oh, here's our update. Blah, 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 blah. So, yeah, you just had a person pay attention for 30 minutes, but you only gave them five minutes of powerful information. You can't get away with that illusion on talk radio. So, the, 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 so in the, I was a communications major. So I, was a, I, made, I went to Pepperdine University. I majored in speech communications, minored in nonprofit management, later went to get my master's degree in special education. And I'm now a certified orientation mobility instructor. But the communication things is right. We have this, this idea that the medium is the message. Like magazines deliver information in a different way. It's a different medium. TV is a different medium. It delivers information differently. Talk radio delivers information. What I think in a much more well-rounded way that still allows the brain to be active to ask those critical questions versus just being lulled and hypnotized and be a passive participant in the information versus being by listening an active listener and curious and inquisitive. Well, it's interesting because 
as we talked about, this recording is, you know, without video. That was, you know, a lot of times my early uh, interviews, actually someone the other day had a video glitch, so we turned them off that time too. But there are a lot of great podcasts where there's a video component. They have this beautiful studio and all that stuff. But I'm, I'm it. I'm the engineer, the, the interviewer, the researcher. I mean, everything. So I don't have the capacity to do that. And my, my argument has always been, People tend to listen to podcasts and podcasts like talk radio, I think are a great medium. And, and so yes, you can watch them, you know, on the studios and they, they make great little video, you know, clips for social media. But when people are driving and I have this all the time, they say, Oh, it's like I was in the room with you and your guest. And I, and I love that. And so I think the podcasts as well, you know, you don't need to do a video component because that audio only element pulls you in in a totally different way than if you're watching on a screen yeah it's the theater of the mind right remember all of our reality is being constructed inside our mind and if you're watching an image that image is being prescribed to you you are made to think about the thing you're looking at. Well, when you're listening, the theater of the mind is free to create whatever beautiful picture it wants. And so, yeah, by so in one way, listening and activating the theater of the mind, right? And, and, and that's like reading a book, right? We're imaging in our heads. Like we can create stories, pictures, vivid realities inside ourselves, right? And isn't it that's that's actually the goal of a great director of 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 a film, right? They read a script, they get a story, and that story first lives inside their mind. And that mind, the theater of their imagination, then creates this world that they then go get to play Hollywood movie magic and create sound stages, backdrops, scenes, settings that came where? From originally their internal imagination. And then we as, re you know, as re receivers of that message, we then go sit in a the movie theater at home, turn on the screen, and now watch what that person has chosen to show us but it, it originated you know that's a reconstruction what we're watching on a movie on the screen is a reconstruction of what originally happened inside that artist's mind so in a way what we're watching on the screen is watching inside the mind of that creator of that movie which is cool, but we just don't break it down that way. So yeah, the theater of the mind by listening, right? The guy, he didn't, the, the director who filmed the movie, he didn't, he, he didn't watch a movie and says, I'm going to make a movie. He'd be tainted by the images. So he wants the purity of the story. And then the story creates all these feelings and thoughts and 
emotions and we have emotions. So now our brain chemistry is firing dopamine and we're getting excited by reading things. And now we're having this visceral response to something we're reading because it's creating a, something in our imagination that lives on the inside. And then if you're a genius artist, musician, whatever it is, you're able to take and transfer what you see on the inside and make a pretty good physical, tangible representation on the outside. And then we call that art. But once again, it's all coming back to the stuff happens inside us. But vision and most of our understanding of life and reality seems that most of life happens outside of us. But anything that's happening outside is really being constructed and made sense and meaning on the inside. So I see people falling prey to the images, to the propaganda, you know, and it's not picking on one side or another. I feel people are pulled to extremes rather than kind of collated in the middle. Um, with, you know, your own life you know, experience and then the, the, uh, the men and women and, and children that you surround yourself that are also in the visually impaired and blind world, what advice would you give the masses to take some of the tools and, and, and the, uh, the things that you guys have learned and apply it to our lives? Because the last few years, I, it breaks my heart, but I've seen, you know, the country divided. I've seen people pitted against each other. I see a lack of buy-in for mental health, for, you know, strength and conditioning and exercise, for time in nature, for the quality of sleep. And they're being distracted by Super Bowls and chicken wings and, you know, reality television. So, if you could, if you had the stage now, the entire nation, you know, what would you say to them with your, you know, your experience of, of your lifeline so far? I would invite everybody, let's go play in the dark and explore our primary senses. Right? Babies are born. In their eye and visual capacity really is informed four to six months. So every baby that's born is born legally blind. The reason why babies know who their mother and father are is because they recognize their voice. Right? Babies were hearing the father's voice and mother's voice because sound is first a vibration. Sound travels through things. Light just reflects off of things. So the baby in the womb was already familiar with the voice of the mother and the father. That's how they recognize their parents. So when I say let's go play in the dark, it, it, it's this understanding that, wow, the, the this thing that everybody thinks vision at a certain point, right? We said, when is vision useful and when is it being used against us? What are the limits and the thresholds of the visual spectrum? Huh. Maybe we're experiencing that now in the power of messaging because what happened under COVID? All right. There's something invisible that we can't see 
that we should all be afraid of. So we all now have to trap ourselves inside our houses. We put ourselves in these tiny boxes. Some could say a prison. We then weren't encouraged to talk and relate to other people. We then, everybody was given a phone, a screen. And now the messaging is only limited to what the media chooses they want to say, right? The media sets the agenda. So whatever the stories that the people at the top decide, the editors, those are the stories that everybody gets. So now we are all being told similar things, different things, or one story and a second story starts shaping people's realities. But we were trapped, isolated, fearful of going outside. Huh. I don't know. To me, this sounds like a lot of what I went through as a 14-year-old, right? Having the curiosity to want to go into the world, but I was trapped inside. I was fearful of the world. Everybody else around me was telling me, don't go outside. You're going to get hurt. You're going to get sick. You're blind. You have all the rational reasons to be fearful. But guess what? It didn't stop me because the spirit of life to live was so strong. I had to answer to that. So what everybody's going through is, is yeah, wow, we have right the, the stories we tell ourselves are where we create our sense of identity. And for me, I went into an identity crisis and had to find some life truths to build my identity from the inside out. And right now we're experiencing, I think, as a culture, a nation, an identity crisis. But we're not doing a very good job at looking in developing it from the inside out, we're still being very much influenced from the outside in. And that's, that's where we're seeing this misalignment, where people are so unhappy, why people are picking on each other, why we've become so diversive. Because we've actually, as humans, built up our identity in too tiny of boxes. I'm this, I'm that, right? You're sighted, I'm blind. Therefore, we must be different and we must live different. And guess what? Because you're labeled this and I'm labeled this, now we have different rules. So it's just the influence of how we are building and constructing our lives. Like, do we have real ownership? of our sense of identity or is our sense of who we are being more influenced by the people around us or, or, or where do we really, you know, come from ourselves? Like in your journey, right, James, like, like you did, a, you've done a lot of stuff. Like why, why did you listen to your inner voice why did you choose your inner voice to go out 
and to push against the voices that were saying, don't do that. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I've never really analyzed it before, but it's, I guess, a, a culmination of, of being very fortunate, grow up on a farm, you know, and seeing my father heal, you know, and seeing compassion and kindness and see them, you know, treat people from the homeless gentlemen all the way through to members of the royal family and their, their horses and, you know, treat them with the same kindness and compassion. And I think that was ingrained and, uh, yeah, and just kind of, I think that upbringing made me question things. And if it didn't compute and it didn't align with what people were being told by, you know, the mainstream, um, it made me push back. Yeah. And, and, but, so you had to push back. Did you feel alone? Where did you get the strength and the motivation to like keep that good fight to push back? Why was that so important to you? I think you, you see the truth in the fire service. You really do. Let's, let's say, for example, you know, okay, you're overweight, but let me give you these, these blood pressure pills and these diabetes pills, and that's going to, you know, fix everything. Well, no, you know, let's have a war on drugs. That's going to fix everything. Well, no, because we're the ones that watch these men and women and children die in the back of our ambulances and on, on scenes. And, and so I think it was the kind of, you know, Wizard of Oz, curtain being pulled back and when you've seen the truth not not a social bias a political bias a racial you know any of that stuff but the actual truth of what is what is a what is creating an environment for people to be happy and thrive versus what is creating an environment for misery and the likelihood to addiction and crime and violence you know th those are very very solid truths that i don't think you can really contest so once you've seen those truths to me, you have a mission then to use that information and, you know, be be um, relentless with that pursuit of changing things. Yeah, I love the fact that you talked about like the social environment, like to help people thrive. What what are some of those attributes or characteristics in a social environment or truths that you see help people thrive? I think the things that we see in most older tribes, you know, now, yes, there are tribes that, you know, kill other tribes and cut their heads off and eat them and all that kind of stuff. So there's those anomalies. But overall, within a tribe, there's a sense of community. There's, there's you know, the, the phrase, it takes a village. And, you know, as we started with the beginning of your story, you know, you had one community when you were seemingly, uh, you know, a 2020 vision young athlete and then things change and you realize, okay, some of those tribal, you know, members weren't brought up in an environment to not be changed by the fact that someone lost a leg, that someone developed CP, that someone, you know, lost their vision. And so there's that shift. So I think that, you know, creating a, a community where in very small numbers, villages and towns, and, you know, I live in a beautiful um, uh, housing community where there's four kind of like housing communities around a, a, a lake and there's a communal pool and playing field and tennis courts. And that to me is, you know, it's a great example of, of what we've lost. So when you care about the people in your community, you know, maybe then you'll you'll be more likely to support local farms and butchers and bakers and, you know, put your kids in local sporting events and fundraise for people that are going through issues and, you know, show up to your, you know, teacher, you know, evenings where you meet your kids' teachers and, you know, donate 
stuff for the classroom. I just think that that's it, you know, understanding that you're part of something greater. And I sadly, I feel like we've lost that. And there's a lot of self-serving, a lot of uh, kind of uh, conversation about, you know, monopolies and, you know, crushing the competition and all this thing. So to me, understanding that that member of a gang, that that homeless person, that prostitute, whoever it is, is, as you said, a human first. And refinding that and, and trying to heal as many people as you can, and you can't get them all, but having that ethos of, of being inclusive and taking care of each other, I think that is the thing that we've lost. And you, and you said it perfectly. We've got so many damn pigeonholes now that people can't see beyond the walls they've created around themselves. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's identity politics, right? Is sort of a weird title that talks about how wow we've we've, we've started putting more people into more lanes. It, the thing that right, it's it, it's not it's not the answers in life that bring us together the thing that actually makes us all common is we're all asking the same questions, right? I have the same human life needs and desires as everybody with the fact that I'm visually impaired. That doesn't change. Right. And so we are, see our human brains, like we really, this whole conversation, (coughs) the frustrating part, of like why all this happened in COVID and why are people so susceptible to believing this message or that is we do not do a very good job at educating our human race on how we're really built. Right. We've been built in the most amazing way. We do not give ourselves enough credit, right? And the, I mean, if you're a believer, right, we've been created in the image of God. That position alone gives so much room for so much creativity and so much life to be expressed. Because if God created the universe, look at all the beautiful, amazing things that are going on. We're a part of it too. Why have we isolated ourselves from that? So, I mean, that's, I'm, I'm just like, wow, that's the frustration, right? We just do not understand that our, our, our mind, our body, right? We have, this, oh, there's our mind and there's our body. But there's a lot of science that would say that our mind is our body. And our brain is our body and mind. It all is connected, way more significant. So we've sort of turned this page of where we're looking for all of the things and the reasons why we're different. And we stopped asking the questions of looking for the similarities. Wow, we're actually all the same. Why are we fighting against each other? And whatever those obstacles are, um, the way in which we internalize them have everything to do with the way in which our senses, right, inform us. 
right? Like if everybody was yourself, like tomorrow you wake up, like it could happen, right? Like you get in a car crash. I've, I work with many people who, uh, one of my more favorite students, Peter, he was uh, like this amazing guy, studied in all types of different martial arts, was a black belt in all of them, provided nature, you know, wilderness training, how to live off the land for a week with no supplies. And then one day he gets hit in the head by a wooden samurai sword. And his brain just doesn't work the same way. Right. You can blindness can happen because your eyes, your optic nerve doesn't work, but also your brain can just stop processing visual information. He still has patterns of light hitting his brain, but they're not useful. And he was like, wow, there was this whole other world that he like had to learn. But what? But the important part is like it's once again it's back to the brain, it's the mind that is the thing that makes our sense of reality. So I'm like, wow, we just don't understand. It's really perception is a crisis of health literacy, right? You're talking about food and smoking and overweight. It's the same education process of like, yeah, we've all been curious about if you lose one sense to the other sense to get stronger. Uh, the underlining thing is that we're grasping for a sense of hope. We hope that it's true. Science is now proven it, right? We've written textbooks about how to teach other people how to see with sound. Now it's up for the people who want to be motivated in the passion of life to go, oh, that's wow, I want more of that. Who doesn't want to be more aware? Let me learn that. So it's this deeper soul craving of what it is to mean to live. And are we accessing that? And I think, you know, when things are comfortable, oh, yeah, we're living, but are we really alive? And that's that there's 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 the magic pill, right? In like the matrix, you want to know or you don't want to know. <laughs> you want to be alive. You just want to live. There's a point in every right, right? There's a point in every person's life where you go, you know, I'm more interested in being alive than the fear. Right? What the only thing, the obstacle holding the people that are just living versus being alive is the relationship with fear. That's why I love these conversations. You know, we started talking about, you know, mountain biking and here we are having these you know, philosophical conversations and it's such an important perspective, this journey that you've been through and like I said, the community that, that surrounds you, specifically, you know, the vision impaired and blind community, we have so much to learn from and what might have been, you know, looked down for or, or discounted as the person with the white stick or the dog here we are, you know, and that's what I loved about that adaptive movement. And here we are on the other side going, oh, my God, you know, we we have so much to learn from this. So I want to be mindful of your time. Let's talk about acoustic athletics. For people listening, 
what are the things that you offer athletes and, and some of these uh, professions that could gain from your knowledge? They get to come play with us, learn about the other senses, engage in these conversations, have experiences where we focus on, we isolate each sense through these experiential learning models. And you start thinking about life differently because you start appreciating what we already have. We've already been given everything we need to overcome any challenge that is coming our way. The obstacle is, is we haven't learned to access that. And the hope in all this message is, oh, cool. Isn't it interesting that people can echolocate? But the powerful message is, is the neuroscientists who studied our brains, they didn't care about helping visually impaired people. I mean, yeah, maybe that was, you know, a benefit, but they were really more curious of understanding how the general human brain adapts to challenges. How the human brain adapts to challenges. That's what we've learned is like, wow, we're, the hope is we're far more adaptable than we ever thought. And then if we use our imagination, we can be creative to come up with whatever solution we want. But we have to have the relational skills to navigate through all of this right that's it like so there's the social world social environment and there's the physical environment they both overlap on each other so we have to figure out how to navigate both at the same time and so in our programs yeah people will have you know experiences where they get to focus on their different senses learn to talk about them in new ways which will then violate their sense of reality in a good way. Wow. Just like when I was like on a mountain bike and I, I didn't think any of this was possible. Our programming is designed to help shatter preconceived ideas about what is possible. And then we have a team of people who help. Let's debrief this experience. Let's unfold this new potency and help design a new future of who we want to be and become, right? That's really what I'm more interested in with all of my friends. Ah, I'm not interested in what we're going to do today. Who do we want to be? Who do we want to become? And then from that answer, let what we do be an expression of those internal truths. And that's a programming with acoustic athletics. So experiential learning to get to the point where it violates your sense of reality. And then we help build and reconstruct a new hope for the future. Brilliant. Well, I'm sure people listening are absolutely intrigued. So where can people find more information about acoustic athletics and where are other places they can follow you online? Yeah, follow us at AcousticAthletics.com, Instagram, AcousticAthletics.com, BrianBushway.com, Brian Bushway on Instagram. You know, people know how to find it on the internet. So it's there. 
and yeah, join us. I mean, if you're curious, people, anyone, you know, we have programmings, responses. We're just essentially inviting people into this conversation about the human perceptual system. And we just have some interesting stories of this being played out. We see it in athletics already. Mentioned Tyson Fury, how sound is so important. There's already athletes who value this, you know, of training through different sensory modalities. And that's why they're good. Wayne Gretzky talked about, you know, he had this hockey sense. And we were working with different hockey teams in the youth. And, and the question was, is, the, is that like hockey sense? Are you born with it? Or is it trained? It's trained. But what we don't have and the reason why people should get involved with us is we develop the vocabulary to talk about the nuances of the other senses where it doesn't seem like it's voodoo that one person has a hockey sense and the other person doesn't. The hockey sense is that Wayne Gretzky was so good at using his sense of sound, his spatial understanding, you know, his skates, feeling the texture of the ice, which was responding to how close he was to the dashboard. I can teach a hockey player how to skate backwards and stop before hitting the boards with sound. You don't have to look behind you to stop and know that there's a board there. Like echolocation is very easy to tell a person. So the hockey sense can be trained in the hockey sense is really all of the other senses informing the story. But we have a visual bias. So we just say, oh, it all happened because of vision. That's the cool thing that we get to discover and talk about is how we can perform at the highest levels with an understanding where it just isn't this mystery. And that's what acoustic athletics is, is taking the mystery away from this ooh, wonderment about how they're so good and going, hey, we all can get there too because we're using our other senses in more powerful ways. And that's a conversation we're inviting people into. Let's talk about it. Beautiful. Well, Brian, I want to say thank you so much. It's been such an incredible conversation. Of course, you know, the the loss of vision journey and then into the mountain bike and some of the other sports that you played and the music that you got into is, you know, an incredible story in itself. But I think it's the perspective and some of the things that we've talked about later that are really, you know, the second layer, you know, this entire other conversation that is so important as well. So I just want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time and coming on the podcast today. Yeah, you're welcome. And, and I said this, I didn't lose anything. I actually gained a new sense. I see in the dark. When the lights are off and everyone's fumbling, finding the light switch, I already have the task done. So in one sense, I feel like I've transcended to different understanding and way of knowing that everybody can have. So it's like I operate with the same 100% confidence whether the lights are on or off. Most people can't. But with first responders and special force teams, we 
can provide with acoustic athletics that same confidence.